Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, is where we'll be today. We're going to be in verses 15 to verse 20. So let me read that for us. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Uh, so let me start with this statement. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is more than likely the greatest description we have of Jesus in the Bible. Um, this, my opinion, in my eyes, um, there are many others that compete in my eyes. Well, what about John chapter 1? We're going to go there. All right, we're going to go there. Uh, Philippians 2, Hebrews 1 that I read earlier. Um, but to me, in my personal walk with the Lord, uh, these verses have been unique to me. They have challenged me. Uh, they have encouraged me. And here's the unique challenge that you and I have today. When I finish um, today, when we're done uh, gathering this morning, you're going to go to lunch somewhere. Or maybe you're going to go home for lunch. Maybe you're coming to New Start for lunch. Um, most of us are going to watch the Cowboys. Hopefully they win. Probably won't. Um, and then, uh, so we're going to watch the Cowboys, and then we're going to return to normal life. And here's the reality about where we're at today. Some of you in this room have dealt with the words that we just read. You've read them for yourself. You've heard sermons on them. You have thought about them. You have dove into the waters of the exaltation of Christ. You've thought about that, what that means and the implications of that. And that encounter with God's word and, God's Holy, and the Holy Spirit has changed you. You see that he should be exalted, that he's above all things. But for some of you, and I don't say this lightly, for some of you, God is going to absolutely rock your world this morning because you have not dealt with these verses. You've not actually thought about them and the implications of them. You have not dove into the waters of the exaltation of Christ. And you're going to realize, I'm praying, I'm praying, you're going to realize by the end of today that Christ isn't who you thought he was. You're going to realize that your picture of Jesus was just way too small. Because when you encounter Jesus for who he truly is, your life is forever changed. You think differently. You're going to eat lunch differently. You're going to watch the Cowboys differently today, I promise you. Okay? You're going to go back to normal life, but life isn't going to be normal anymore. You will be changed by the Spirit of God because of Christ and his exaltation. When you swim in the waters of the exaltation of Christ and you are surrounded, you are changed. You are changed. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 challenges everything we think we know about God, about the world and our place 
in it. And if God just gives you the eyes to see these five verses, I promise in 35 minutes you will sing differently. You'll sing differently. So let's jump into those waters. Um, As we talked about last week, false teachers were beginning to infect the minds and the hearts of the believers in Colossae. They were distorting and diminishing who Christ was by saying, if you wanted to know the fullness of God, then you had to go outside of Christ. That just knowing Jesus was not enough. You, you, You needed something more. You needed the secret knowledge. And Paul is going to do two things in verses 15 through 20. First, he is going to bring clarity to the person of Christ, okay? Clarity to the person of Christ. He isn't going to leave room for confusion or misconceptions. He's going to put a big spotlight on Jesus so that they can see and we can see every part of who he is. And second, he's going to make sure that their understanding of Christ is big enough. It's big enough, right? Because if you understand the magnitude of who Jesus is, then something like Colossians 2.8 becomes a non-issue where Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive, captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not captive according to Christ. If you are truly taken captive by Christ, if he is rightly exalted, if your understanding of Christ is big enough, then you're not going to be taken by empty philosophy. If your understanding of Christ is big enough, if he's big enough, then you're not going to be taken captive by empty deceit and these powers of the world. And so here's the question for us to think about as we dive into this. One is, is your picture of Jesus clear? Do you understand who he is, how he works, the implications of his identity? And the second question is, is your understanding of Jesus big enough? Does he play a small role in your life? Or does his exaltation rightly rule everything you do? Right? And so we're going to see two aspects of Christ that Paul is going to exalt in these next five verses. The first is Christ's relationship to creation. And the second is Christ's relationship to the church. So there's your two points for this morning. Um, Creation and the church, okay? So um, we're actually going to start in verse 19, and we're going to look at the exaltation of Christ in creation. So verse 19, Paul says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Okay, so Paul is saying here that in Jesus is all the fullness of God. You don't need secret knowledge. You don't need to go outside of God to learn more about God. You just need to go to Jesus. So in Jesus, we don't just get part of God. It's not like we see just aspects of who God is. We, you don't just get a picture of God. In Jesus, we get God, all of him. He is full. Nothing is missing. And so you might ask, okay, well, but how does that work, right? <laughs> like, how does that work? Well, Colossians 2.9 actually makes this even more clear if you jump down to Colossians 2.9. He says, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells, what's that word? bodily, right? For in Jesus, all of the deity of God dwelled bodily. The divine put on human skin, and now God has a body. He he was born as a baby with a body. He walked this earth 
with the body. He died with the body. He rose from the grave with the body. He ascended in acts with a body. He's sitting in eternity today with a body. He's going to return in a body. God in the flesh. And why is this so important? Because this means that people physically saw him, that they touched him, that they talked to him, and that one day as believers, we will too. This is what Paul's explaining in verse 15. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. That short sentence you can do an entire series on. Maybe one day we will. But there's so much to unpack in just that sentence, that in the person of Jesus, in the body of Jesus, the fullness of God dwelled. And so if you want to know what God is like, you don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder, man, I wonder what God is really like. You just look to the person of Jesus. He is the image, the representation of the invisible God. And so here's the question. Okay, so if we can know, then what is God like? What is God like? If the fullness of God physically dwelled with us, if he has a body like ours, then what is he like? So we're going to spend the next few minutes answering that question. And as we look at these stories, keep in mind verses 19 and 15, that in Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells. Nothing is missing. In Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So when we kind of come across the name of Jesus in the scriptures, we're going to do something that's a little bit different. Um, we're going to say the name, we're going to say God instead. Because too many times, we, this is, we're going to talk about the Trinity in several weeks. We're going to spend four weeks on the Trinity. Warning, um, because it's complicated. Uh, too many times, as maybe it's our Western lines of thinking, we, we, we focus more on that God is three instead of God is one. And we think, okay, Jesus and the Father, they are completely separate, and they are completely separate, but they are also connected. And in Jesus, we see the full picture of the Trinity. We see and understand more about our God because the word has come, and we'll get more into that later. And so when we get to the name Jesus, we're going to say God because he's three in one. He is God. And so that will help us understand, okay, by Jesus, through Jesus, we get to see the full picture of God. I hope that makes sense. Um, okay, so let's do this. Zacchaeus was a what? And a wee little man was he, right? He climbed up in what? A sycamore tree, right? Okay, Zacchaeus, by the way, is the worst of the worst, okay? He's a tax collector raising taxes from his own people uh, for Rome, literally funding the oppression of the Jewish people. So Zacchaeus climbs in a tree because he wants to see Jesus. He wants to see who everyone's talking about. He, he wants to see God. And God, Jesus, walks up to him. And what does he say? You come down from that tree, for I'm going to your house today, right? And, and so they go to Zacchaeus' house, and they eat dinner. And Scripture tells us that Zacchaeus repents. He gives back all the money uh, that he stole. And God tells him in Luke 19, 19, and it says, and God said to him, today salvation has come to this house. And so we learn from the fullness of God that dwelled bodily in Jesus that God has mercy for the repentant sinner. That God has mercy for the repentant sinner. In John chapter 8, 
uh, the scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus and they put in front of him a woman caught in adultery. They tell God, uh, hey, the law of Moses, Moses tells us that we should stone such women. What do you say? And what does Jesus do? He, he bends down and he begins to write something in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote. If someone speculates that they do know, they don't. Um, and so he tells them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. And they all start to drop their stones. And then what does Jesus tell her in John 18, 810? It says, our God stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And God said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. But there is mercy for the repentant sinner. He is the image of the invisible God. In him, all the fullness of God dwells. And all throughout the Gospels, we are reminded that there is mercy from a perfect God. And not only do we see mercy from God, but we also see a God that is not disconnected from us. He's not disconnected from our emotions, that when we have joy, God understands what that means. When we're sad, God understands what that means, that he's not disconnected from our emotions. He isn't just some robot God in the sky who has no empathy, compassion, or regard for happiness or sorrow. In John 11, uh, Jesus gets word from Mary and Martha that his friend Lazarus is sick and he's about to die. And so Jesus travels to go and visit and go and see Lazarus, but he's too late. By the time he gets there, Lazarus is dead. And so Jesus shows up and Lazarus has already passed away. And we get this text in John 11. It says in John 11, 34, and he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And verse 35 says, our God wept. God wept. What do you learn about the invisible God through the person of Jesus? We learn that our God weeps over sin and death. That he grieves. We also see in Jesus that God has power over death. He has power over sin. And he has power over creation. There is nothing above him. He is all powerful. After Jesus weeps, what happens? He literally raises Lazarus from the dead. Have you not read this story? (laughs) He tells them, hey, move the stone from the tomb. They say, no, we can't do that. He's going to stink. And so Jesus tells them to do it anyways. He says, Lazarus, come out. And then in John 11, 44, it says, the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And God said to him, unbind him and let him go. Think about the significance of that. We learn through the fullness of God that dwelt bodily in Jesus that he has the power to raise from the dead. There's no one like him. And so when the New Testament says what awaits us is a resurrection of our bodies from the dead, we have reason to believe it because all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. He is the image of of the invisible God. We also see that God has power over sin. He has complete power over sin. In Mark 2, Jesus is teaching at someone's house and it's just completely packed. The text says that there was no more room in this house. The people were spilling out of the door and four guys bring their friend who is paralyzed and they can't get to Jesus because it's so packed. And so what do they do? They drop him through the roof, naturally. Um, They drop him through the roof. They lower him down. They put him right in front of Jesus 
And when this guy gets in front of Jesus in Mark 2, 5, it says, and when our God saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus not only can physically heal this guy, but he makes a proclamation as God, and he's making a declaration here to everyone, for everyone to hear, as God, I have the power to forgive your sins. Last one. Through Jesus, we see that God has power over all creation. In Mark 4, the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee, and the text says that there was a great windstorm, and the waves were breaking into the boat. The disciples panic. They think they're going to die. They come to Jesus, and they say, hey, do you not care that we're, past, we're about to pass, or that we're about to die? And so Jesus wakes up, and we get this in Mark 4, 39. It says, our God awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great all right, so the low tomorrow, it's cold outside, by the way. Um, I don't know if you knew that. But the low tomorrow is going to be 13 degrees. So here's what I want you to do. When you wake up in the morning and it's freezing cold, I want you to open your front door, and I want you to stand on your porch, and I want you to yell for the entire neighbor to, neighborhood to hear, stop being cold. What's going to happen? Nothing. Well, if you forget to put clothes on, you might be cold in jail, right? But... Nothing's going to happen. You're not God. Jesus is. He talks to the wind and the waves as if they're a child. He is the image of the invisible God. And in Jesus, we see that he has power over creation. I mean, how many of us go through life and we're just like, God, just show me. Show me who you are. If you would just show me, then I'll, I'll do this thing. If God, if I would just, if you would just show yourself to me, we resonate with Philip in John 14, where it says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. God, if you just show me, it'll be enough for me. Jesus said to, the, said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak in my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am, the Father, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. That God has already shown himself to you and to me through Jesus. We just forget to read about him. We just forget to talk to him. Like, like Our picture of who Jesus is is just way too small. He's already shown himself. We've just been uninterested. He's the image of the invisible God. And then Paul says, he is the firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn of all creation. So that phrase, firstborn of all creation, can be confusing. Historically, it has actually spurred on a lot of debate about who Jesus is. In the fourth century, there was a man named Arius. Arius read this passage. He is the firstborn and all of creation, and Arius took that to mean that Jesus was the firstborn of all creation. Okay. And if he is the firstborn of all creation, then that means that there was a time when Jesus didn't exist. He had to be born. And that's what Arius began to teach. He taught that Jesus was the first one ever created, that there was a time when Jesus was not, and therefore Jesus cannot be God because he had to be created. And so what do you do with that? 
right? I mean, that's a pretty plausible argument. How, how do we know that Jesus wasn't created? What do we do with that phrase, firstborn? Well, scripture interprets scripture, right? When you don't understand something in one place, you look to the entirety of scripture to make sense of it. And in Exodus 4.22, when God is talking to Moses, he says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, uh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Okay, wait a minute. Israel is not the first nation on the planet, right? I mean, go read about the Tower of Babel. Israel was not, Israel isn't even mentioned until Genesis 12. So how is Israel's God's firstborn son? Okay, Psalm 89, 27. Scripture says about David, and I will make him, David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. How in the world is David the firstborn? He wasn't even the first king of Israel. Saul was. He, he wasn't even the first in his family. There's like a billion of them, right? They're making kids all over the place. So is God just confused about what that phrase firstborn means? Or maybe it's that we're confused. See, the English language is tricky, isn't it? How many of you English is your second, or it's English is your second language? Anybody? Yeah, a few of you. Is it hard? Yeah, 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 it's hard, right? For example, driveway. Is that a place you drive? No, it's a place you park. Butterfly. Is that butter that flies? Do you ever throw butter in the air and just go, butterfly? <laughs> Is it a fly with butter on its wings? When you make a sandwich, I hope it contains neither sand nor witches. You ever heard that before? That would make a pretty awful sandwich. So when you think about that word firstborn, we have to wonder, is it possible that it doesn't actually mean first one born? So it wasn't like the Father and the Holy Spirit were sitting up in heaven one day and said, you know what would be cool? If we made a third person just like us. And let's call him the son. That won't make it confusing at all, right? So to be the firstborn means that he is supreme. He is distinguished. He is preeminent. Paul's going to connect it to that word preeminent later, right? That you, to be the firstborn means that you surpass everything. You are distinguished. You are the firstborn. Israel was God's firstborn preeminent people, right? He cared for them. He loved them. He ensured from them would come one, that through Israel, we would get Jesus, the image of the invisible God. They were preeminent among all other nations, they were God's chosen people. So when Arius began to teach that Jesus was made and therefore wasn't God, a bunch of people got together at what's called the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, and they stated for the record, no, Jesus was not made. Jesus is fully human, and he is fully God. In Jesus, the fullness of God dwelt bodily. And they looked at passages like John 5:18 where it says the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. And when they asked why, the scriptures say this, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So their problem with Jesus was that he was saying that he is made of the same stuff of God, the same stuff. If you have an illustration and you emphasize the wrong part of it, it becomes untrue, right? So, God is a husband, and the church is his bride. So God is married? God has sex? No. 
You are emphasizing the wrong part of the illustration, and you're making it untrue. God is like a husband that he loves for and cares for his wife. God loves and cares for his people. When you understand the illustration within its intent, it becomes beautiful. If you emphasize the illustration outside of its intent, it becomes untrue. So when Colossians says that he is the firstborn of all creation, he isn't saying that Jesus was created. He is saying that he is made of the same stuff of God, that he is God. He is one with God. That's what they said at Nicaea for history to record, that he is homoousia. He is of the same substance. That's what they said. And that's why in verse 16, Paul says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and then this last one's important, and for him. There is not a thing that exists that was not created by Jesus. You ever thought about that? He is the creator of all things. Everything you have ever seen and everything you've never seen, he's created it all. That last line is incredibly important, and all things were created through him and for him. Remember last week, I told you that there were two issues that Paul's going to address in Rome. One was syncretism, which we talked about. The other was the Christian standing within the Roman Empire. And the Romans saw nature as supreme. Nothing can defeat nature. In fact, when Marcus Aurelius was Caesar years later, he wrote a book called Meditations. And in it, he put, O nature, all things come from you, subsist in you, and go back to you. And so Paul here is making the point. No, there is something above nature. Nature is actually subject to Jesus. Everything you see, everything that's visible, the skies, the tree, the wood, the brick that your house is made up of, everything, everything that is invisible, everything in heaven, angels, demons, all that is unseen, Jesus created it all. That's why John 1 1 talks about this. Apostle John, he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So John says that the beginning of all things was the word of God. He says that that word of God was God, that he was there. The word was there in the beginning. And then in verse 14, he says, and that word, it became flesh. It dwelled bodily. See it? And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word of God became flesh. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And then if you go to Genesis 1-3, it says, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Who do you think said that? Say it. Jesus. <laughs> He's the word. He was there in the beginning, speaking, creating. All things were, cre- all of scripture is connected. Do you see it? Speaking, creating. Let there be light. And there was light. And the one who spoke that into existence became flesh. Do you remember in Luke 19, the, the triumphal entry? Um, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and, and everyone just starts going crazy. Right? People start dancing. They're, they're throwing their cloaks uh, down in front, of him. in front of him. They're singing hymns as he rides into town. And the Pharisees come to Jesus and they tell him, hey, make all this stop. 
Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Stop all this madness. Do you remember what Jesus tells them? Luke 19, 40. It says, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Brother, you cannot stop the worship of my name. This was all created for me and by me. And look at verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Before Jesus, there was nothing. Can you, or let me rephrase that. Can you picture a time when nothing exists? You can't do it. You can't do it. Because even before Jesus spoke all things into existence, he was there. There has never been nothing. God is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. There wasn't a time when God was not. I mean, God created time. The only reason that you can think about that is because God created time and gave you the capability to understand how time works. Some of you are always 30 minutes late to anything, so you still don't understand how time works. (laughs) Jesus did not begin to exist on Christmas morning. He has always been. In the high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus says this, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you when? Before the world existed. All things are created by him and for him, and he was before all things. Like, it's pretty daunting to think about the reality that when you look around at this world and how it operates, this is all here for Jesus. He created all the physical, all the invisible. He he even created the ways in which the world functions. Like, why does water boil at a certain temperature? Water boils at 212 degrees. I had to Google that. Because God made it that way. Like, you don't have to throw in your pasta and go, I wonder what time the water's going to boil today. You don't have to do that. God made the work a certain way. Why don't you float to work instead of walk? Because God created gravity, right? God created the laws of the universe that govern how we live. He spoke those into existence. And then Paul says that everything he created, he holds it together. What in the world does that mean? Everything he created, Jesus holds it together. That means that hour by hour, the reason you do not fly apart into a billion fragments and then vanish is because Christ's word holds you together. This is true for everything in the universe. Everything that has ever been made, every body of every person, every male, every woman, every child, every mountain, every ocean, every supernova, it would all cease to be if Christ did not hold it together by the power of the word. This also means that God's not surprised about your life. Have you thought about that? He's not surprised by your circumstances. He's not surprised about how you feel. He's in control of it all. He's above it all. And he knows you. He created the mountain, the stars. He holds it by together and he also created you. And so in verse 18, Paul makes a transition from talking about Jesus being supreme over all creation to Jesus being supreme over the church. It's important that we note this transition. Remember the issue of syncretism in Colossae. They believed in order to find the fullness of God, they needed to go outside of Jesus. And so in verse 15 through 17, Paul is making the point, no, Jesus is everything. There's nothing to find outside of him. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn 
All things were created by him and through him and for him. And he's painting a clear picture of Christ that begs the question, as the church, is our understanding of Christ big enough? You don't need any other knowledge. You don't need to tether yourself to any other thing. You don't need to find your hope in anything else, your comfort. And so we transition to say, not only is he above all created things, but he's above you, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. Now, let's understand, this is a side note, Paul isn't just talking about the church in Colossae. The church in Colossae does not exist today. Um, in April, Renewal Church, our church, will be five years old, which is pretty cool to think about. It's awesome, yeah? But this church could cease to exist tomorrow if God so chose. And if Renewal Church ceased to exist, then would the church of Jesus cease to exist? No, come on, absolutely not. The church of Jesus is not limited to one building, one style of worship. There are churches today with just an elderly lady playing organ and some dude singing hymns, and they are passionately worshiping Jesus. There are Haitians worshiping today, and I don't know if you know what's going on in Haiti, in immense turmoil, and they are raising their hands, and they are singing, and they are praising God, saying hallelujah. They are, they are the church of Jesus. They are part of Christ's Church, individual churches will cease to exist. But in the end, the church of Jesus will not die. Why? Because the head of that church is Jesus and he is eternal. He is everything. He is the head of all creation, but he is the head of the body, the church. So my body goes wherever I tell it to, right? So if I want to move my arm, then the head is what tells me to do that. If I wanted to do the worm on stage, which I will not, but if I did, it would be my head that would give me that bad idea. In the same way, Jesus, as the head of the body, he leads us as the church where he wants us to go. Just like he has authority over kings and rulers, over the sun and the stars, over all the things that were created, he is the ruler of this church. Not me, not you, not any of your elders. Jesus is the ruler of the church. And we go where the head, Jesus, tells us to go. And notice the intimacy in the metaphor. I mean, your head is like intimately connected to your body, is it not? Right? There is not a functioning, this is going to sound weird, but your body cannot function without your head, right? Like you can lose an arm and you can still function, but if you lose your head, you're dead. I meant for that to rhyme, right? Your, your mind is the processing center for how you understand and operate within the world. In the same way, Jesus is intimately connected with us as the church. The one who created all things. He is intimately connected with us. There is no church without Jesus. He is the head of the body, the church. And then we get this, which I got stuck on. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Okay, he is the firstborn of the dead. And then he connects that phrase to the word preeminent, the idea that you surpass everything, that you are distinguished. So earlier Paul said, okay, he's the firstborn of creation, that of all that is, he is the firstborn. He surpasses. He is chosen. I mean, he, he surpasses everything. He's distinguished above all that is. So what does it mean that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead? I think it means that among the dead, he is distinguished. Among the dead, he surpasses all. Why? Because he did what none of the dead had ever done before. He beat death. And he walked out of that tomb 
alive. And so now, literally in everything, in all that is created, in life and in death, he is preeminent. There is no one and nothing like this. So, so check it out. If he is the firstborn of the dead, if he is supreme over death and is distinguished among all the dead, then that has to mean that there will be others who will follow him. Does that make sense? Just like he is the firstborn of all creation, all creation answers to him. They are subject to him and they worship him in the same way all the dead will answer to him. All the dead is subject to him. And in the end, all the dead will worship him. So that means when Paul says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins in Ephesians, that we can have confidence that the firstborn of the dead, the supreme of the dead, the distinguished among the dead, can do with us what he did in that tomb. Does that make sense? The, the, the Bible's so cool, y'all. Like, he can raise our dead souls back to life because he is the firstborn of the dead. <laughs> and that's why I think Paul says he is the beginning. The beginning of what? I really wrestled with that. Like Paul's already established that Christ is the beginning of all things. Why is he saying he is, he just, he is the beginning? Of what, Paul? Why does Paul use that word beginning in the same verse when he mentions the firstborn of the dead? The only conclusion I can come up with is that he is the beginning of new creation. He's the beginning of the new covenants. He rose from that grave and he is the first of many. He is the beginning of salvation and resurrection. For those who worship Jesus, death is not the end for us. It is the beginning. It is the beginning of new life found in the firstborn of the dead. He came out first. He was preeminent. And thousands, millions, who knows how many, are going to come out after him. But he is the firstborn. And then in verse 20, it says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That the blood of Jesus, it secures a new heaven and a new earth where everything that was once broken, all the brokenness that we feel, he is reconciling it. And here's what Paul is trying to get these believers in Colossae to understand. It's the same thing that I pray that I understand and that you understand. The God who created all things, all that you see, all that you don't see, he is far more glorious far more powerful, far more infinite than our finite minds can understand. He thought of the order of the world. He thought up your body. He thought up DNA. He's over all creation, the stars, the sea, the ground beneath our feet. This supreme, sovereign, all-powerful God has made himself known to us. He has come from perfect heaven to broken earth, and he has put on flesh. He lived among us. We saw God because we saw Jesus and we saw that he's a God of compassion. He is a God of justice. He despises sin, what it has done to creation, what it has done to us, the chasm that is created between us and God. But in the life of Jesus, we saw that he has, God has mercy for the sinner, that the fully God, fully man, Jesus, laid on a piece of wood that he created, Soldiers spit on Jesus with moisture that Jesus holds together with the power of his word. They nailed him with metal that Jesus thought of. And that metal was driven through the hands of the creator 
and the sustainer of the universe, the firstborn, the distinguished. His, his blood was shed. And through that blood, it's the only way you're going to find peace. It's the only way you're going to find peace. The forgiveness of your sins. And then they laid him, they laid the one who was, think about this, they laid the one who was before all things in a tomb. But as the firstborn of the dead, he rose from that grave and it was a declaration to everyone, to all who would ever doubt him, to, that the sovereign one, the omniscient one, the omnipotent one, God died, but he is not dead now. He rose from that grave and he is supreme over everything. And so here's the question. Do you have a clear picture of him? Do you see him? He's not some teacher. He's not some add-on in your life. He's above all things. And that includes you and me. There's no box that you can fit him in. There's no way to fit him into your life. He rules your life. You submit to him. He doesn't submit to you. Do you have a clear picture of who he is? And then also, is that picture big enough? Is he big enough? Is the role, just honest, is the role that Christ plays in your life just too small? Do you think about him too little? Do you just read a little bit about who he is? Do you talk to him just a little bit? Like, have you, have you made idols in this world of, of money, of family, of future, to where Christ just plays a small part of that? I mean, do you think that there's just a small chance that God can save that person? That brother, that sister, that friend, that daughter, that son? I mean, do you think there's just a small chance that God can heal your marriage and reconcile and redeem? When depression hits, do, when depression hits, do you just have a little bit of hope? When suffering comes and you feel like you're gasping to air, do you think little of his power? Is he big enough? A right understanding of who Christ is is leads us to an appropriate worship that changes us, that we see he is exalted. There's nothing better than him. There's nothing bigger. There's nothing more grand. There's nothing who has, who has the power to heal or to reconcile or to redeem or to create. We don't just worship him a little bit. We don't have a little God. We, our worship is big because Christ is big. There's nothing better and nothing bigger. So let me finish with <laughs> uh, John's description of Jesus in Revelation. It would be a tragedy for us not to read this text. Revelation 1, verse 12. In fact, go ahead and stand, and that way, um, and worship team, you can go ahead and come up. Um, I want us to see this text and then just go right into singing and exalting Christ. Revelation 1.12, John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and then in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes, think about this, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. 
In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And then verse 17, John says, when I saw him, this this is John, the one who spent years with Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. And then look what he says, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Amen. Amen.